What's up, everybody, and welcome to Boardroom Out of Office. It's me, Rich Kleiman, and I'm here as always. You know who I'm with. What's up, Gianni? What's up, Rich? Man, we're on Zoom right now. We sure are. Because you're home with the only person in New York who's got a bad cold but doesn't have COVID. God bless, man, because I cannot quarantine. I need I need to be able to to go to the store and get my supplies. You're not built for quarantine. You're not a quarantiner. I'm not built for quarantine. I mean, some people really are built for it. Like, it ain't nothing. They're just like, it's 10 straight days of staying home. Oh, completely. Yeah, I know a few people like that. Like family members. <laughs> <laughs> colleagues um shit but you don't have covid but you only took one test but you know what if i were you i wouldn't take another one because you feel better i do I'm slowly but surely coming back alive even though you know uh someone that works for us i don't want to blow her up she took five tests to per- to take every precaution prior to go see a relative and then by the fifth test found out she was positive and i get it because you want to be extra careful but I do think at some point, if we all test that many times, we're probably going to find. <laughs> There's got to be some margin and error after the fifth test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, it's like, it's such a, I can't even lie, it sucks because um, it's such a bougie little issue that's going on in New York right now, which is people that are trying to avoid getting COVID before they go on vacation. And it's like... It really is not representative of what the rest of the world's dealing with, but it's, it is what it is, and I'm in the middle of it myself. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to go away in a week, but I'm also trying to live. I'm in the office. Nobody's here. But you got to keep going and living, but you do have to avoid this, and it's scary shit, bro. I saw some crazy headline on IG this morning. I don't even know if it's true, but White House is like, we are not changing anything. We will get through this. Omnicron cannot stop us. Yeah, Omnicron cannot stop anyone. No, nor can Omarion. <laughs> this Omarion challenge is crazy. I just think it's dope because I actually like Omar- Omarion, but it does make you think of him. <laughs> Did you finish your holiday shopping? Um. Well, you know, I didn't, to be honest with you. But I have gotten a bunch of presents for over the last few weeks, like a hybrid Hanukkah, Christmas, and then Christmas, uh, there's a few select gifts that will be handed out. Fire. But I gave a lot of money away. I'm not going to front. It's the best gift. Gift cards. Gift cards. I mean, physical cash is good, too. Yeah, physical cash is good, but I guess gift card at least shows that you put like a little thought into it. <laughs> at least it shows you put it in something. <laughs> Yeah, to, to just go to the ATM. I was like, here. But to that person, I wonder if it's more annoying. You're better off just Venmoing them money at this point. <laughs> do they have like that thing, like a Venmo? How they do? I'm sure they have like a holiday. But I'm sure they do. They definitely got some holiday promo. That's a dope gift. Just like get a notification and be like, so and so sent you a Christmas gift. It's straight cash in a Venmo. <laughs> you know what else is a good gift? I'm not even gonna lie. Shit, I shouldn't, even, I shouldn't even say this, but whatever. Weed. Weed's a good gift. Weed's great. We everyone, Most people love weed. I know. And now it's like, I know, I could actually go to Weed Maps now and figure out a way to gift somebody, which I never really had that kind of like curation process. It's cool. So go to Weed Fantastic. Maps, pick out a gift. You don't even have to get them actual weed. You get like 
the accessories. I'm sure they got some packaging present style. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. That was a nice shameless plug, but whatever. That's what we do here at 35V. I want to change the name of the company at 35V. Really? Yeah. What do you think? I'm open. All right. Let's talk about logo be fresh, just like a stamp. Boom. 35V. That's hard. Right? I mean, that's how we call it internally anyways. Yeah. Ventures always confuse people because they thought all we did was venture capital. But now I don't even care because it actually sits in the middle. So it's like whatever. What do you think about Facebook being meta now? Um, I think it's cool that he was just like, we're changing the name of the company. <laughs> like like McDonald's just told everybody they weren't McDonald's anymore. But the thing is, Straight is up. <laughs> he can do like it. Household name is just like mm, remix. Yeah. It's no longer a Xerox machine. There's not even a Xerox machine. The only reason I said that is because that word is like cemented. Who has a Xerox machine? <laughs> that was so old. Shit. Well, my next guest, by the way, uh, he's not as young as you. He's not as old as me. That's a weird intro, but I went with it. My boy, Joe Gebbia, co-founder of Airbnb, one of my first friends um, when Kevin signed with the Warriors. Dope dude. Dope dude. Legend. I love Airbnb. I know. And Joe it's funny because you know when you store somebody in your phone when you first meet them and you go with like a tip or not tip like a hint or like something about them and then even though you become real good friends with them you may never change it you know like my wife's was just changed like a year ago because my kids thought it was crazy that it was like however i had her like a wale who i met in 2005 i have down as like wale hip-hop i don't know what that was about <laughs> Uh, and I never changed it. I never changed it. So Joe is Joe Airbnb, even though he's Joe Gebbia and like one of my close friends. But I bet you he's that in a few other people's phones. Who, me? In other people's phones? No, he's Joe Airbnb in a bunch of people's phones. Like oh, that. yeah, for sure. You know what I know? I am Rich KD manager. <laughs> <laughs> Rich KD. <laughs> Rich KD. Rich KD for sure. Or like, and then sometimes when people were like, bring their phone up and they'll be like let me see if i still got you in my phone it'll be like rich mark ronson or like rich rock nation <laughs> like nah so what's probably gianni rich you're probably nah you probably you may have like eight different things next to your name <laughs> who knows be like <laughs> gianni apple gianni wendy gianni 35v <laughs> gianni baby dre gianna bell gianni uh bella's boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> What what a plug. Shout out to Bella. Shout out to Bella. Coolest name out. Just because I got my daughter's name's Bella. You know, your friend's name's Bella. I'm saying friend because public now. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, two hours, yo. Buckle up, everybody, because this was a long ass interview. But let me tell you something. We got deep. Listen to this on a car ride. Like right now, if you're doing something and you got to be somewhere in 15 minutes, my bad. But. If you put this on and you're about to hit a road trip or you put this on and you're not doing anything or you put this on and you already went to Weed Maps and you're stuck, this is a great, great, great listen. Let's start shouting out our fans, too, that we know are listening because we know that we probably know them all. <laughs> shout them out. I'm going to shout out one of my biggest old-time friend and fan, Miss Stephanie Lerner. Say what's up to Stephanie Gianni. What's up, Steph? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I like that, bro. Um, all right, man. Good, ch uh, good chatting with you, G. Good chat. Let's get into Let's it. Let's get into it. Peace. Peace.
So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Joe Gabbia. Rich, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's always fun when I have a friend on. It definitely is always fun when I have a friend on. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of familiarity here, so I'm going to try to grill you like a real interviewer. You ready for it? Let's, let's go for it. All right. <laughs> Bring it on. Um, but seriously, thank you for joining us. Yeah. I mean, have you listened to any of my pods? I have. You serious? I have, yeah. yeah. I asked my wife once. She said one. Which one? She, probably the first one. She was <laughs> just was like, why would I listen to you in my ear when I listen to you all day long? She doesn't put it in, in her ear to go to sleep at night? No. Kinda. No, the opposite. Yeah. The opposite. Um, well, thank you again. I am really excited to have you here. Um, so, Joe, talk to me. I, I know so much about you as uh, an entrepreneur from what I've been able to see. And obviously, when we hang out, I'm a curious dude. I ask you questions. But I pride myself on this process of being able to sit with someone like yourself who's been so successful and to really kind of break down the playbook um and listen let's have fun with it so you let's grew up in atlanta georgia i grew up in warrensville georgia which warrensville, is georgia. near snellville near norcross near duluth which is close to atlanta okay i didn't know any of those places except for <laughs> atlanta uh yeah it's like you know a typical suburb you know middle class family right down the middle um, but it was an amazing place to grow up. Um, I, I ended up going to the, to the largest high school in the state of Georgia, Brookwood High School, which had like just an offering of, of you know, everything from sports to, to art to you name it, they had it. Uh, so it was just super lucky to grow up there and get just get exposed to so many different things, you know. What was like, so when you meet entrepreneurs, um, they're wired all differently, but there's one part of them, in my opinion, that's wired the same, which is like, this dreamer, this kind of uh, young person that visualizes their future and doesn't look at like the route that most people take and get inspired by it, right? But it happens at different times. For you, was it something you noticed in yourself early or did you kind of look at your future originally and go, okay, this is my path, I wanna get out of Georgia, but you never thought you were gonna start a company that's changed our lives, did you? <laughs> I, I, I knew I'd start a company. I obviously, I couldn't have told you as a kid, of course, what it would be, but uh, I, I was lucky that my parents were both self-employed. Okay. And so I, I, would, I grew up in a household where I got to see them forge their own path. I got to see them, you know, make their own success or not. Yep. You know, I saw them have good months, I saw them have bad months. Uh, and there was something incredibly inspiring about um, their work ethic and just their, the way they applied themselves. I, th I just thought to myself, like one day I, I want to work for myself. Yeah. But did, so I get that. I think there's, that's something that I was pretty cognizant of early too. Um, like whether it was someone that owned the store on the corner, the person that owned the gym that I'd play in, it was like, you want to own something, but was making money. Cause I never ever take you as someone that's driven by money. <laughs> I mean, I've never gotten that feeling from you. Um, but you know, it's part of, somebody's aspirations, young entrepreneurs at times. Was that even something that registered with you? I, I loved, I'm trying to remember back to like the, the very first entrepreneurial endeavor that I ever had as a kid. Um, and uh, what I remember is it was a second grade and I, was, I loved to draw as a kid. That was my thing, I was always drawing. And I drew Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I, I mounted them on this poster board and I sold them to my classmates for a buck. <laughs> in the second grade like that was like the, my very that's first a hustle. memory that's a hustle I, I was you know trying to make ends meet now. that's amazing um you guys quick side note yeah. i did something similar but i did sketched you? a dog and then they asked me to do it again 
I sketched the dog. Everyone yeah. was into it. Yeah. I was like, how much to, to draw this dog yeah. for you? And then the, the whole idea was that I would have to go and draw it, but I was sketching it, so my whole cover <laughs> was blown. But you were actually an artist. Well, how old were you? I was in fourth grade. All right, so like we're elementary school you know, hustlers. <laughs> Two entrepreneurs, bro. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you were an artist as a kid? Yeah, I grew up, you know, my, my passions were, were music, sports, and art. And uh, very fortunate to have parents that, that supported me in all three. Um, but that, that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle drawing experience uh, was the first time I ever created something and somebody gave me money for it. Mm-hmm. And it was a dollar. But um, it was doing so well that uh, the, the, the students were going home and asking their parents for extra lunch money to pay for these drawings. And so the parents complained to the school. And then eventually my teacher pulled me aside and said, you have to stop doing this. <laughs> it was I like didn't my, know who they were talking to. <laughs> my first brush with regulators. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Um, uh, so, but I remember the, the thrill of, of making somebody smile. Yep. You know, of creating something and seeing that uh, it, it, could, it could be just so um, interesting and valuable to somebody else that they'd give you, you know, money. Totally. Like, they pay you for it. It's, it's honestly, it's like a high, right? I mean, I would imagine as you guys were building your company, and I don't want to jump ahead, that like when you start seeing that like double and triple and you see audience and customers come in, there's just, it's like your proven concept. Every crazy thought you've had and everything you've dreamt <laughs> up doing, when someone purchases it, whether it's a Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtle drawing, it's a good feeling. It, it is. We'll definitely get to that. What were um, your sports, though? I didn't. Oh, man. I, would, I played. Everything, uh, baseball forever, uh, tennis forever, basketball, uh, cross country, track and field. Um, sports were like, I don't know. Sports were uh, so formative for me. I was yeah. like, like when I collaborate with other people, like you know, uh, I guess like if I look back, like what, what did all those mean to me? Um, sports were like uh, uh, basically the, the art of learning that you have more inside you than you think you do. Mm-hmm. Right, like you can draw more out. You can push yourself harder than you think you can, and it's sports that that shows you that without question. Without question, I mean that's something I've carried with me, of course, my entire life. Like, yeah, because certainly in the business world, there's times where you want to quit. You're it's uncomfortable. You know, you're in pain. You're like, ah, oh, this is this sucks. I don't want to yeah. do this anymore. But you think back to like, in my case, like cross country running was like, oh my god, talk about the gauntlet, right? Yeah. Like, you're, I, mean, I can't relate, but yeah. <laughs> Imagine, I would imagine. Imagine yeah. sprinting for 3.1 miles is kind of like uh, what it is. Yeah. But uh, um, I remember like the, the training for that. Uh, we used to have, you know, uh, what my coach called Hell Tuesdays, which is where you'd have to run uh, two six-minute miles uh, back-to-back, and then you'd run five 800-meter, um, you know, sprints, basically. And in all those moments, I, I just wanted to quit so bad. But my coach, I remember it would just push me like, Joe, I could keep going. Don't, don't stop. And I'd say, all right, I got, I got a little bit more. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Rich, like there are so many times in my life where I've thought back to those moments in sports as a kid where I realized that I actually am capable of more and I am capable to keep, pursu- keep pushing through the pain. It's funny you say that. I've, I've, so I think we're, I'm like a numbers guy. So I think we're 54 pods in and I've talked to some incredible entrepreneurs that analogy and that kind of understanding of the fact that sports as a kid, in a lot of ways, if you're not going to make it professionally, which most don't, a lot of people turn their back on it. But the idea of playing and being a part of a team, having to deal with being cut, 
having to deal with being coached, all of those things, you really cannot get that in many other things as a kid outside mm. of sports. I think it's imperative for people to try it. I try to push my daughters to do it, mm. but a lot of times if you're not a serious athlete, especially in today's day, people don't understand the point of doing it. But mm -hmm. I think you did nail it, and those lessons are pretty hard to come by outside of sports as a kid. Like I, like I think putting yourself in, a situ in situations where you're uncomfortable and figuring out how to push through that is like kind of the, one of the most fundamental things you could do to, to sort of prepare yourself or train yourself for entrepreneurship. Yeah, totally. <laughs> those moments happen a lot. Yes. <laughs> and what about like, were you a tech guy? Yeah, so like uh, I was in high school in the late 90s. Dot com is like yeah. exploding in this mythical place called Silicon Valley where the, the future lives. I had no idea. Like, had you ever been out of Georgia? Uh, I've been to New York because my family's from here, um, but never to California. Like I I couldn't even tell you where Silicon Valley was on a map. Mm -hmm. Like it was such a foreign place to me, but I remember coming home from school every day I get on my computer and I go to the, the tech blogs, ZDNet, CNET, Business 2.0. And every day there was this new story about a company that was launching from Silicon Valley. Yep. And it just seemed like, man, if you want to start a company, all roads lead to this place in the US. <laughs> yep. There weren't stories like that come out from anywhere else. And it planted a really deep seed in me. I'm like, all right, one day I know I want to start a company. I want to be part of that conversation that it seems so exciting. Like the future was unfolding in this place. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it definitely, I mean, it was all traditional press and media back then. There was no blogs, no social media, but it did hit really hard in the late nineties where like, if you were aware and old enough, it was like the tech boom, the dot-com era. And were you like somebody that learned on HTML or you like oh, yeah. learned how to design and yeah, you yeah. were thinking about being in tech because you went to RISD for design, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I taught myself HTML in the 90s, made websites for my friends. And I, I remember when I published my very first website, um, it was it was enlightening because here you created something, you hit, you know, upload and suddenly your idea was available to the entire available, planet yeah. or anybody else with an internet connection. It was like, wow, like this is, I was, I was hooked. Crazy. <laughs> I, you know, I once, um, do you remember when they were teaching like internet? Well, not internet, but like the modem in school and mm -hmm. they like do the dial up modem. <laughs> yeah. Like we were definitely part of a generation that, and everyone is exposed to new things. But I think in terms of what we were exposed to, like from the old to the new, mm -hmm. we were at that amazing inflection point as a society where like the world changed. And I guess web point three or whatever, mm -hmm. to try to sound like I know what I'm talking about, is <laughs> a new innovation in our society, but it's a, it's a very niche one right now still. Mm -hmm. And it's all still like a language no one understands. But in the late 90s, you started to see people and i started a dot-com company in new york too i don't talk about it because whatever we did raise money though i raised some money there you go through a sick ass launch party in the hamptons blew all the money <laughs> um but another fact both the people i started with have now have gone on to uh run acorns and stock to it so real guys but we blew through all the money but it was became something people wanted to do mm. um when you went to RISD, though i guess that was when in the early 2000s it was the 2000 uh to 2005 so uh when i went to rizzi basically the dot-com busted yes and i saw the other side of it the bubble yeah the bubble right 2001 um and suddenly like wow like that that was also a moment for me where i saw that like huh like suddenly like what you created or the value of what you created could could disappear yeah like almost overnight 
um, that also left an impression on me. It's funny. That felt like, oh, shit, this is over. Right. Remember Silicon Alley? That's what, is they still yeah. called that? Here? I don't Not think really, they called it. Right? That's kind of that was like dated. a term <laughs> in the early 2000s, yes. late 90s for like New York tech right. scene. Right. We didn't know what to do with it. They thought they were creative. Like <laughs> Silicon Alley. It was just the same people. Um, so when you went to RISD, now you're tech's behind you. You're still entrepreneurial. But I, I never really imagined probably that RISD, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to anybody else that went to RISD, but I would imagine that it was a very artistic culture, mm. right? And less of an entrepreneurial kind of, um, you know, culture of like, you have to succeed, you have to succeed, where the rest of society is like that to a degree. What were you at during college? Had you kind of now chosen this world of art? Yeah, so uh, in high school, I took every art class, basically had every every art teacher in my life kind of kind of tapped the shoulder for the one ahead of me and said, hey, look out for this this guy, Joe. Make sure he's challenged, he's got some talent. And eventually, uh, high school teachers encouraged me, said, you gotta go to RISD, it's one of the best uh, in, in the nation. Um, applied and got in, and you know, the thing that maybe isn't known about art schools is that RISD in particular, it's a collection of some of the most ambitious creative people that you could imagine. It's a hard school to get into. And so it's like, it's people who really care about pursuing a career, a creative career, yeah. art or design. Uh, and so suddenly I found myself surrounded by, you know, the other top high school students in art, you know, uh, yeah. on campus together. Um, and I, you know, I think it's, it's whether you're studying art or design, uh, there's something that actually, you know, art school is training to be an entrepreneur. I'll tell you why. Talk to me. Well, you go to art school, you study design. Um, you have to imagine something that doesn't exist. And you have to figure out how to make it. You have to figure out how to build it. It has to solve a problem. Like, that is actually a core principle of an entrepreneur. Like, an That's entrepreneur is like, you're spotting opportunities in the world. You're looking for like, where's the gap? Where's the white space? What's, what's being underserved right now? Um, and, and then you have to imagine a solution. You gotta go, gotta go ship it. You gotta yep. create something. And design school is exactly that same formula. That's really, I, I never thought of it that way. That's something someone like you would say though. That was pretty dope. <laughs> and to be honest, I probably offended the one or two other RISD listeners that we have. And I do apologize. <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. <laughs> I, I love this girl in high school though that went to RISD because there's like five schools, right? Oh no, that's in Rhode Island. There's five schools in LA that have like all art school. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's a couple in LA. Yeah. yeah. RISD is like right by Brown. Yeah, it's right across Rhode the Island School of Design. Yeah, yeah. right across. The so, street. what was your thing? You were you drew Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles in college? Yeah, too? I studied basically Teenage Mutant. Did Ninja they have Turtle a class drawing. for it? <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> the cartoon drawing. No, I went to be a painter. I discovered industrial design, which is the design of everything in our lives. Basically, wait, Indu what does that mean? So, mean industrial more. design is like product design. I'll never forget um, on the the whiteboard in the industrial design studio scribbled on the wall was the definition of industrial design. And the definition is anything made by man that's not art or architecture. So if you consider the built environment around us, the shirts we're wearing, the shoes, this table, these mics, these cameras, that's all been designed by somebody. These are all decisions that somebody made with the materials, how it's manufactured, the look and feel, the cost, all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was something incredibly empowering about industrial design is that you could actually play a role in shaping the world around you. You could actually be a part of the decisions of how our world is shaped. That's pretty cool. 
Again, something that I would expect you to say. <laughs> so industrial design is honestly the term for people that can build something that's not art. Or architecture. Or architecture. So at that point in your career, what was, like, what was the vision? Are you one of those people? Do you set a goal? I've always had to have a goal. Like during football season, yeah. I would wear a football jersey and tell every one of my friends and my parents' friends that I was going to be a football player. I needed to define myself by something. 100%. And I think that's where sports comes back in. Yeah. It's like you have to have a goal, whether it's a personal record or personal best or, you know, being a state champ or whatever the thing is. Like I, I operate off of that that stretch, not even a goal, a stretch goal. Yeah, like the first line, first down marker. You got to have a first down marker. You got to have a first down marker. Yep. Um, so it, that's across my life. And certainly at RISD, you know, um, I wanted to, to be the best that I could be in what I was studying. Yeah. You know, so you just wanted, you wanted, you would, you had kind of accepted you were going at that point in your life, be in design, industrial design. Um, and yeah, well, well did I yes. say it wrong? No, no, no. You got, you got it right. All the while though, um, RISD was also a playground for entrepreneurship. Was it really? Oh man. Hey, tell me about it. Like I had so much fun on campus, starting things, getting things wrong, screwing up, getting things right. Like it was such like a Petri dish for just starting stuff because mm -hmm. the consequences were relatively low. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, being somebody that loves basketball, I get to campus and I go into the office of student life and I go up to the guy behind the front desk. I say, I I'd like to play on the basketball team. And he looks at me with a dumb, a dumb look and he goes, we don't have a basketball team. And we sat there in this awkward silence for far too long. <laughs> and he, he breaks the silence and he goes, but you can start one. I go, really? What do I have to do? And he goes, oh, come back to me with 12 names of other students that want to play basketball. And I go, that's it? So I ran around campus. I found 12 other people. Came back a week later. I had the list. I go, what's the next step? And he goes, go to the student government. Now you got to get funded and recognized as a student organization. I go, that's it. A week later, I'm, I'm funded and recognized as an organization. Um, so then I suddenly find myself with 12 people. I got to find a gym. <laughs> I got to start to put a season together. Um, and it was actually one of my first startups was starting the basketball team wow. at RISD. Did you get it off the ground? Hell yeah, we did. I'm sure you guys all designed your own jerseys. Uh, the whole thing. It was a beautiful brand. Who'd you um, play? Well, so... <laughs> good question. <laughs> that conference must be pretty weak. <laughs> I, I call us uh, D4. Um, D4, yeah. <laughs> but, um, we actually played other, other colleges uh, in New England. So I remember, this is going back 20 years now, um, 2001, I was calling these colleges and man, like Rich, I'd be on the phone trying to pitch him. Hey, this is Joe Gebbia calling from the Rhode Island School of Design. I'm with the basketball team <laughs> and I want to, hello, <laughs> hello. Uh, I, I got rejected by pretty much every coach that I called. And then finally there was one school, I was on the phone with them oh. and they actually said, yeah, we'll, we'll come down to play you guys. And I about jumped out of my chair when that happened. I couldn't believe, oh my God. Who was it? It's Clark University I in Massachusetts. Clark. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I got recruited to play at Clark. Did D, you? D three got one. Of, that was one of my only letters. <laughs> Come on, Clark in Massachusetts. Yeah, really? Yeah, I swear to God. I actually got a letter from UT, which is so ironic. But I got it because my mom was friendly with uh, Tom Penders at the time, and I think she asked him <laughs> to send me a letter. I, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to play Texas. Um, that's pretty amazing, man. Did you guys end up competing against? Did you play Clark? We did. We did. Actually, December fourth, two thousand one, twenty years ago, this month. I'll never forget it. Uh, they sent down their JV team and their shortest guy was taller than our tallest guy. Uh, I was player coach at the time. 
they come in with like the head coach, three assistants, a trainer, the whole thing. And I see them coming off the bus and I go, Oh my God, <laughs> I think they have no idea what they got themselves into. <laughs> we were basically also playing at a, a private high school in, in Providence cause we didn't have our own gym. Yeah. Um, we lost 94, 49. I'll, I'll never forget. But actually rich in my mind, it was a huge win uh, Yeah. because it, it was our first like product to market, right? Yep. Like, of course, the first time you put a product, it's not perfect, right? And like, certainly that game wasn't, but it established the team on campus. Were you trying, was playing basketball important to you at that point? Were you trying to build, were you trying to like accomplish something? You wanted to win at that. I was trying to accomplish two things. One is I wanted to keep playing basketball. I didn't want to give up the sport. The second is um, RISD has a reputation for this uh, just crazy workload. And I'd heard these stories about, you know, you go into your, your departments and you kind of get siloed out. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could bring people together? Like, wouldn't it be cool if, if the team could actually, you know, be an outlet to bring different parts of campus together? And I'm proud to say that, you know, uh, during my time there, we built it up. We had a season 12 games every year. Record? You know? uh, it, it was you know, one in 11. It's got to be one in 11. Yeah, it was, no, 11 and one some years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We eventually got other art schools involved, Pratt here in Brooklyn, Cooper Union. Big uh, basketball school. Mass Art. Yep. Um, huge. <laughs> huge hoop schools. Hey, man, in the world of art schools. It's pretty big. That I was get a big it. deal. It's, it's competitive, right? Wait, it's, I get it now. I know where the story's going. Tell and me. your power forward was none other than yeah. your co-founder, Brian Chesky. <laughs> Is that what happened? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> he, ironically, we met because of sports. I'm running the basketball team, and he was running the hockey team. And it was, did he put together the RISD hockey team? Hockey team had been around for many years. Um, he was running it and we actually met through that sort of relationship of where the, really the only two guys running these big organizations on campus. And so people actually used to like say, oh, there go the two entrepreneurs on campus. They'd look at the two of Are us. Are you serious? Yeah. So what year was this that you met him? 2000, fall of 2000, so 21 years ago. 21 years ago. Let's just yeah. like put that out there. Cause it's crazy. As you get older, like time goes so quickly, it's scary. And it's a bit more cliche when you're younger and when you get older, it becomes like so goddamn obvious, right? You just like think about things in the last 20 years and you can remember them like they were yesterday. And then 20 years ago to think you and Brian met and where you guys are now, I mean, you could never, obviously could never even imagined it. But I do think that there's something magical when partnerships like, come together and when you first meet them, you know, and that is, that part is cool to think, like I think about it with Kevin and I, like mm. the first few times we were talking, I remember, especially cause he was Kevin Durant, you know, you guys were you and Brian at that point. But when I first met Kevin for a basketball fan, he was already Kevin Durant. You know, he had just finished at Texas and won rookie of the year. And when you meet someone for the first time, you just have a certain mindset. And if it's somebody you were excited to meet, you never forget it, period. Just don't forget the where your mind was. <laughs> and I know exactly where I was in my headspace when I met Kevin. And I can, like, can't help but always think, like, I wonder if I could tell that person right then, that's your business partner, that's your brother for the next however many years. <laughs> and you met Brian, like, you guys not only started this partnership, you changed the world. So were there, like, this sounds corny, but were there sparks? Like, did you guys meet each other and some weird connection happen or was it a process? <laughs> I have a funny story about this. Um, so the first year of RISD, I'm in the orientation and the orientation leader is talking to us and saying, look to your left, look to your right. The people that you're gonna be with the next couple of years are your future collaborators, 
your future employees, your future partners. And I thought like in that moment, I was like, oh my God, like I know I'm gonna start a company one day. I'm, I'm gonna look for somebody to start a company with. And so in the back, of, in the back of my mind. Consciously. Yes, in the back of my mind, throughout all those years, it was kind of like, you know, always sort of evaluating like, what I wanna, how do I vibe with this person? What, do we, do we, you know, improv well together? Do we plus one each other? Do we, yep. yes and like, um, and uh, there was a moment with Brian where one summer we got employed on campus to do industrial design work. Like companies would come to RISD and say, you know, we want student, you know, talent to work on this project. And so we got paired together and we came up with some of the craziest shit together. <laughs> like nobody else that was working on the same projects came up with anything close to what we were doing. And we went down to present to the company. Uh, it was uh, Con Air that makes the, the hair yeah, dryers. Yeah. And so Con Air wanted to like, you know, redesign this curling iron or something. Um, but Brian and I went down and we actually presented to the head of marketing and all this like VP level people in the boardroom. Um, we pitched them like a whole new company. We're like, no, 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 Conair needs to shift and like pivot out of- like, They were, by the way, at that point, like a half a billion dollar business, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? You know, I just remember the guy's face that was staring back at us like, who the who are you? these guys? We had a whole corporate strategy for them. It was so far beyond products. But anyway, in those moments of working on that, I remember that was when the sparks started to fly. I thought like, if you put Brian and I in the same room, we can actually come up with big ideas together. Yeah. Like he's the guy, the two of us together will amplify ideas and will we'll resonate off each other in a way that I hadn't experienced anybody in my life before. So you you noticed the compliment in your skill sets from the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Cause yeah. that's big. Like, I think it's interesting what you said. Like, are we like a quick like inventory of the dynamic? Like, do we compliment each other? Do we overlap each other when we speak? Yes. You know, like interrupt <laughs> each other is, I, I, I totally get it, but you saw that synergy and the fit pretty much right away. It actually, um, it came in the form of ping pong. Wow, talk, I love, I mean, talk to me. Well, I had a ping pong table at my house at RISD, and um, Brian and I would play like like hours on end, like like just like the most epic, like, like battles. Battles. 21, like 18, 21, sweating, 19, dripping, sweating, right. I get it, yep. Um, and the thing is, we would make each other better, like through that ping pong. Like I did, we hit the ball harder and harder back to each other. And by the end of the summer, I mean, good luck putting anybody in front. Like we could have taken down anybody. But the ping pong was and still is a metaphor for my relationship with them. We ping pong ideas back and forth. Back and in forth. that process, they get better. They That's get cool. better, they get stronger. And in a competitive way or competitive spirit, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think there's a, there's, there's a competition uh, that might not be the right word, but like there's a different intensity with two founders, let's say in this case, ping-ponging back and forth, which is like, you're not just gonna hit the ball back, you're gonna hit the ball back with like some force or some spin, or and that's the equivalent of like some thought, you know? It's mm -hmm. like if I bring Kevin an idea that I think is great for us, he challenges me at times and vice versa. And I, that's like, you know, I think you if you don't get that early, then that's not a partner. That's like a yes man or that's somebody that, can be complimentary to you, but that's not a partner. Um, I like the ping pong analogy. I actually um, am pretty good at ping pong. We should play sometime. All right, I'm really good. I, I, don't, I didn't see a table when I walked in. I always look for a table. No, we're, I don't have a table here. I thought about it, but I feel new like office. That, new yeah, office, yeah, okay. ping pong table. All right. Um, <laughs> so you, you didn't land on an idea, you and Brian, when you finished school, right? Because you ended up in the Bay and he ended up in LA. 
Yes. And I, I had such a strong feeling about him and I that the night before we graduated, I took him out for a slice of pizza because I had a premonition and I felt like I needed to tell him before we went our separate ways from campus. Um, and so I remember in Providence on Thayer street at, you know, Antonio's pizza, we're eating a slice there in the window and it's a, a buzz of activity around us graduation weekend. And I, I look at Brian, I say, Brian, um, it's just, I've just had so much fun with you. The project that we did for Conair, we knocked it out of the park. I said, I just have this feeling that one day you and I are going to start a company together. No way. And they're going to write a book about it. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Hold up. Hold up. Let me just clear this up for our audience, for the two people from RISD and the rest of our audience. You told your co-founder before you left RISD that something special was going to happen with the two of you and that a book one day would be written about the success that the two of you had. That's true story. hundred percent true. That's incredible. I mean, I believe it. You're, I, I could tell you're not a bullshitter. I mean, I knew that first time I met you. That's crazy. It was crazy. He laughed it off. I kind of laughed, kind of laughed it off. Um, and he moved to Los Angeles and I finally got to get to this mythical Silicon Valley Silicon place. Valley, yeah. I took the first, the first trip to San Francisco I could. I packed my life into my Jeep Cherokee. What it, color? I had one too in high school. Oh, red. Red? Yeah. So did I. I swear to God, I had a red Jeep. I had a red Jeep my junior year in high Loved school. It, man. Wow. Great that's car. crazy. With the, um, you had the, which, what'd you have on the side? The gray strip? Uh, a little gray strip. It said limited. It yes. Perfect. Holy shit. Was, that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Good taste in cars. Yeah. I mean, um, it was really cheap, though. It was like a first. It was, it was perfect. Entry, yeah, entry yeah. into driving. Four wheel drive. Yeah. You know, it goes up to Vermont to ski in the winter. Very time. easy to drive. Yep. Um, All right, back. But, Where are we? You took your Jeep Wrangler. I fit my wife into the Jeep. If it didn't fit, I got rid of it. And for like five days of driving cross country, I literally had my wife in my car. It was the most, actually the most free I've ever felt in my life. Just you? Just me driving cross country with my wife in the Jeep. No way. Yeah. Do you smoke weed on the ride? <laughs> you can't answer that. I right? listened to- so That's uh, the difference between someone that has a public company. Yeah. I can say it. Um, but I got to, to San Francisco. I had a six month job um, doing industrial design uh, in the city uh, for a great company called Chronicle Books. And that was sort of my, my landing cushion where I was gonna figure everything else out. You just wanted to get there. Just had to get there. So you were doing industrial design for Chronicle Books? A book publisher, yeah, designing. You just um, wanted a gig, though. I, I needed to get out there. Chronicle was an incredible company in the design world. Um, I got to work on insane package designs for George Lucas's book and Hugh Hefner's book and um, T Tiffany Diamond's book. Like, <laughs> like, I worked on all kinds of cool stuff. But, um, but when I got there, Rich, it was now... 2006, the summer 2006, in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, it was the the beginning of what people now call Web 2.0, right? Like the internet was coming back. YouTube had just been acquired by Google for north of a billion dollars. That was, I think, one of the biggest acquisitions at the time. Um, and Facebook, Facebook just. was starting to take off. Like it was such an exciting time to be in San Francisco in the Bay. So, like everybody was moving there, everybody had an idea, and there's something special about Silicon Valley, um, which is that people are there in general to help each other out. Yeah, there's a spirit of pay it forward in Silicon Valley that is probably one of the reasons why it's been such a successful place mm -hmm. to get weird, crazy ideas off the ground.
It's funny because, like, you know, obviously I spent three years out there in it um, where we became close. And I do, I did get that. Like, there's, I think, look, every city that's a center of an industry, whether it's New York, LA, um, Silicon Valley, there's something that they have over someone else. And then there's things that they're lacking that another city may have. And I, I do think in the Bay, it feels like everyone you meet with is all part of this like puzzle to do something bigger. And they all know that they're part of it. And it's not like any of the pieces are competing against one another. I, VC companies maybe compete for deals, but it feels like everybody is just an evolution of the next and the next and the next to like, evolve evolve society evolve mankind evolve technology and it's, it's like one of those things where like when people tell you that they're changing the world there whether it's going to happen or not you believe it and i think that spirit was obvious for me but when you were there in 2006 you know i guess now people want to create a business every day they want to be successful overnight 2006 silicon valley's buzzing but was it for you like, okay, what is my idea? Was it that or was it just, I'm in it now. I'm, I work at this book company, I'm building, I'm in the action. Or were you, were you looking at what you were gonna do? Like, did you, cause you know, it, for a second, like yeah. let, let's really think about this. You didn't just start a company, right? You started a company that changed our verbiage. It changed how we live. It changed how people view travel. It changed so many things that it's hard for people to understand sometimes that these things happen as kind of naturally as, you know, someone opens up the bagel shop in the corner. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes I think there's an idea, you know, there's something or there's this like desire to create this next idea. But I don't get the feeling that you were like looking to figure it out, like to become a this to become Mark Zuckerberg. That wasn't what you wanted. Right. Well, I can tell you this. Um, all along from going back to high school through RISD into San Francisco, I always had a side project. I always had some little, you know, entrepreneurial experiment running in you the did. background, yeah. always. And at, most of the time it was multiple yeah. experiments running at the same time. Um, you know, so like the basketball team was one of those examples of, you know, something that I started and ran and, you know, I'm really proud that 20 years later, it's still going strong. Yeah. The ball, That's uh, pretty by cool. the way, the team's called the balls. <laughs> the RISD balls. I, the RISD, I, I left out a very important detail here, wow. Rich. Wow. Yes. Um, so Please. it's art school. We, you know, we can. There's a bit of uh, creative freedom on campus. So, um, and there was a precedent, yeah, uh, set with naming conventions. So the the hockey team since the 1960s has been called the Nads. <laughs> so when you cheer for the hockey team, you yell, "Go Nads!" Bingo. So there's uh, a men's <laughs> soccer team uh, called the Sacks, women's soccer team called the Jugs. And so then I started the basketball team. Well, what do you call the basketball team? Obviously, it's the, the balls. Exactly. Wow. Um, there's a, a cheerleading team called the Jockstraps because they support the Nats and the Balls. Um, and uh, we even had a... a the, <laughs> they support Nats and the Balls. <laughs> One of the best you bumper stickers. you allowed to say all this stuff anymore? Are, we even, are you allowed to? Uh, yeah, Robert it's RISD. It's, it's RISD. Art Come on. Art school. Art yeah. school. Best bumper sticker of all time. Uh, we had a, a tagline for the team, RISD balls. When the heat is on, the balls stick together. <laughs> I'll get Do you. Do you have merch? <laughs> oh, we had crazy, the best merch. Yo, that yeah. is incredible. Oh best my merch. God. So like, there were always like these like experiments of, of, uh, you know, of starting things, experiments. And by the way, like one of the hardest, 
marketing challenges I've ever faced is how do you get art school students to a sporting event on a Friday night? If you can convince them to do that, like you can do anything, you can do anything. Oh my <laughs> so, goodness. So um, once you pack that, you pack the house in. What's that? Did you used to pack the crowd? Cooper Union came to Providence, man. We had hundreds of students standing room only. Um, I'm not kidding. Like it was like electric. It was it really art school versus art school. It was and like, who, did the balls win? Crazy. Um, that was not a good couple years for us. Eventually, we did beat Cooper Union, but not when I was there. Um, but there was uh, another project that came out of RISD, which followed me to San Francisco. Um, and so, this story begins the day after graduation. Um, I desperately wanted to, to crack the code. And the code I wanted to crack, Rich, was how does an idea get to the shelf of a store? Mm. How do you get a product on a shelf? A new original product. Yes, RISD did not teach that. RISD was still you know, the concept and prototype, but it never went beyond that. And that beyond was like this mysterious Bermuda Triangle of product development, like I had to, I had to solve this. And so, my first year at school, um, I'm in a drawing class, and this is the way it works, is you come in, you pin up all the drawing homework, and you literally sit on the hardwood floor for eight hours, and you critique, or you crit, the work. That's, that's, that's how, crit? It's called a crit, short for critique. Crit. Yeah, so like, people say, how'd your crit go? Oh man, the hardest crit, like the teacher. Is that a college thing, is, is that something that's That's real? an art school term, yeah. Art school. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Never heard of it. So, here I am sitting on the hardwood floors, and it is so uncomfortable. And by hour four, my butt is so achy. And I, at the end of the day, we get up and I see all of the seats of the pants of my students. They're covered in charcoal dust and paint ink in this like bun print. I'm walking back to the dorm and I think there's gotta be a better way. What if we had a seat cushion you could sit on that could keep you comfortable and keep you clean? I saw, huh? So I sketched a, sheet, a, seat, a seat cushion in the bun shape. I called it Crit Buns. And it was just a sketch, you know, of like a foam with a handle in it yeah. kind of thing. So skip ahead to senior year. Um, I actually made, a, I, now industrial design, I know how to make prototypes. I built a full-size version of the, the crit buns. I showed it to my classmates. What do you guys think? Oh, I love this. How much did you pay for it? Oh, like 20 bucks. And I got to the point where I didn't know exactly how to make it. Or like, you know, kind of, it is kind of seemingly ended. At that point, I saw a poster on campus that said competition for design diploma. And at RISD, they give you the paper diploma and they give you an object. And every year the object changes. Everyone gets this object. Yes. And so I submit the crit buns for the competition and it wins. And so now the school is gonna pay for 800 crit buns to get made. The to whole graduating class. The whole graduating class. The problem here is that they tell me on May 1st and graduation is on June 1st. Oh, you can't manufacture 800 no crit buns way. How the hell are you going to do that? And meanwhile, I have two degree projects, two thesis projects no. due in that time period as well. But I'm like, this is too good an opportunity. I got to figure out how to get this done. And so I get onto Google. I, I call every phone manufacturer from India to England. Everybody's telling the same thing. Uh, good luck, kid. You know, it's going to take you three months to make the metal mold. And everybody told me this couldn't happen. And finally it gets to like, we're like two weeks in, the school's calling me, hey, what's going on? You know, we gotta get going on this. I'm like, hang on, hang on, hang on. So they say, you got till Friday at five o'clock and if, if you can't pull it off, we're gonna go with something else. It's Friday at 4 p.m. I'm laying on the grass in Providence outside the industrial design building. I'm looking up at the sky going, what haven't you're I- dreaming? I'm you're dreaming? You're like, begging, what, you're praying. What haven't I thought of yet? Yep. You know, like I gotta make this happen. And I go, you know what? I haven't asked 
one of the teachers in the, uh, the building. So I run inside, I go, Steve, here's the situation. Do you know anybody? And he goes, actually, you should call this guy I used to work with. I call this guy, I pour my heart out to him. And he goes, wow, you really want this, don't you? I go, yeah, whatever you can do. And he goes, all right, send me the CAD file. I'll move some stuff around. I'll cut the metal mold this weekend. I can ship it wherever you need to go on Monday. Wow. So that point, the I remember. The Crip Bun. The Crip Bun. So I remember there was a, a pool float manufacturer in Connecticut who said, we can't make the mold, but if you send it to me, send, send it to us, we can do the injection molding of the foam. So I get on the phone, I call this guy at the pool float company. I'm like, hey, Christoph, I, I got it. I got the mold. Can you get this done in the next two weeks? And he goes, you really want this, don't you? And I was like, yes, like anything you can do. And he goes, all right, FedEx it here. And two weeks later, we had 400 red, 400 blue crit buns, RISD-05, screen printed on the top, given out to every classmate. Wow. So it, do you think everyone still has it now? Probably. It's a collection. Do you have one? Definitely have them. I want to see one of those and the um, <laughs> RISD balls. Some merch. What was the tagline again? When the heat is on, the balls, balls stick, stick together. together. Yeah. I wanted that, both of those things. So that's incredible. Cheers to you. I finished my drink, but cheers to you. Take a sip. Yeah. I finished my shit ages ago. Um, but so the, the reason I'm telling you this is that the day after I graduated, the school gave me the metal molds, $5,000 expense. And I realized it's like, I'm just going to start a company to take this product to market and demystify the black box of how you get a product on the shelf of a store. And the next like two years was my journey in bringing this product to market. Really? Oh, oh you brought Crip Buns to 100%, market? 100%. Wait. And I set a goal. What was the goal? The goal was what is the most uh, illustrious store that I could get my product on the shelf of? Bed Bath & Beyond? Ha <laughs> uh, Not quite. Let me think of another one. Sephora? For, no. de for designer. Oh, for designer. It's in New York City, I'll give you a hint. Um, it's on 53rd Street, I'll give you another hint. Give me another hint. <laughs> It's in a big white building with a lot of art, a lot of art inside of it. On 53rd? 54th, maybe. MoMA. 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 That's Bingo. what I mean. The MoMA, yeah. You got it. The MoMA design store was like the it place. It probably still is for any designer that wants to sell a product they make. Really? Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like the, the, the pantheon of, of design objects, right? It's like... like it's really? The, People just put things in there? No. It's, it's hard. You're it's submitting impossible. to a museum... Yeah, you're submitting to a buyer who's got to make a decision. Yeah, and yeah, I get it. So that was my stretch goal. And I'll eventually, two years later, you made it? Why didn't I introduce you as the founder of Crip Buns? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. I didn't even know this side of you. I knew I was going to learn more. So did you make money on this thing? I made just enough. They met all expenses. The whole point of it, though, wasn't to make create like a major know, business. It obviously. was like... It was like my own grad program yep. that I created for myself. It was business school. I had to create a website, I had to market it, I had to distribute it. You know, I was packing these things in my garage, ship them out. I had to walk into stores and like sell. Yeah. You know, I had to like. You checked every box of building a business 101 in the dog days. Man, it's just Getting hustling. it like, so it has a heartbeat. I traveled all around the world. I go to Japan to sell these things. I go to Australia to sell these things. I think the key is the two people that said to you, um, you really, really want this. You know what I learned in those moments is that when I had nothing else to offer them, including I didn't have any money, all I had was enthusiasm. Passion, yeah. That's it. That is all I had to give That's them. what people react to, passion. That's it. Yeah. I actually, I, I can't work with people that don't love what they do anymore because it's tough to be around people that aren't, that don't, aren't passionate in any way, right? That's incredible, man. And, and does that then like open up this like unlocking your brain now that's like and I, I can similar 
like parallel. I can see similar things for myself. It was like that first experience that I joked about before proved that I could operate in a professional environment, you know, and it's like you need that little boost. And I think, you know, I didn't finish school, but even for you, there's certain things that get left untaught, you know, and mm -hmm. I think the fact that you were able to do that probably gave you a different boost of confidence that huge school and all of those other things you mentioned hadn't been able to do. I mean, the minute I walked into the MoMA store and saw for the first time a product on, on the shelf next to, you know, some of the design they put legends. A, a, a butt in the MoMA? <laughs> a beautifully designed butt, Rich. <laughs> so in the process of trying to figure out how to sell butt cushions to stores, um, I remembered an equation for rejection. I learned this one weekend, I snuck into a, like an entrepreneur kind of workshop at Brown University. Mm -hmm. I definitely wasn't supposed to be there. Um, but I heard about it and I was able to figure out how to, how to sneak in. And a guy was giving a presentation on the kind of art of dealing with rejection. And he puts this equation up on the screen and it said, uh, SW squared plus WC equals MO. And he explained, when you're selling an idea or a product or whatever, some will love it plus some won't times who cares <laughs> equals move on. <laughs> I love that shit. Say it again. Do it. Tell me again. All right. SW squared. Some will. Some will plus some won't. Some won't. Times WC. Who cares? Who cares equals MO. Move on. Move on. Wow. And I have to tell you, the first four stores I went in to try to sell crit bonds, I got rejected or laughed at. Um, and I would walk home and I would just be telling myself this equation. All right, look, some are going to love it. Some won't. Who cares? Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. And eventually I had a store in Providence that bought four cushions. <laughs> and the woman goes, I remember she goes, uh, so here's the shipping address. I go, no, no, no. I'm going to walk home and get <laughs> bring, them, them right and bring it back. And so I did exactly that. Later that night, I go up to the window after the store's closed. I press my fist up against the cold glass of that window. And I could see on the shelf of that store, there were four cushions. And in that moment, it was like, game over. I got this. You did this. I did this. Like, all right, I cracked the code. Now let's just keep going. It's amazing. So the code that you needed to crack was as simple as, and but it's not because it's representative of so much. And like we referenced earlier, creating and then selling was how do I get product first and foremost, which in the virtual world is way less of a complicated equation, but in the physical was the challenge that no one could understand. How am I getting this idea? How can I make something and bring it to store? So you felt at that point, like now, what can't you do? Yeah. You that, felt that. It was, it was definitely like a, I leveled up. Like You leveled up. I had a better understanding of my capabilities. It was, you had it was, no connections, right? You didn't know anybody when you moved to the Bay? Uh, I knew like two people. But you weren't like, no one was like, Joe's coming to town. No, no, no. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So I was, I was you, a nobody. <laughs> but you end up in the Bay. Why did Brian end up going to LA? Um, he had interest there. Some friends that moved out there with him as you. And then you convinced him to move to the Bay? So 2006, again, like, resurged the internet. I, you know, I very quickly identified this is, in fact, the center of entrepreneurship. This is where people come to make shit happen. I got on the phone. I said, Brian, I don't know what you're doing in LA, but you got to get your, you got to get up here. And, you know, he had some obligations and it took about a year of recruiting. And eventually he said yes. And I have to give him a ton of credit. He quit his job. What was he doing? 
He was in industrial design work. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he left that job. He was he jealous of Crip Bun? Um, he was probably You'd hating. have to ask him that, but I know that I actually sent him one in a box, and I, I know that that helped kind of get his attention. <laughs> you were like, my man, get over to LA. Look what, <laughs> I mean, get to the valley. Look what we're doing over here. <laughs> well, I had another, at that time, I, had, I started my first internet startup. What was that? It was called Ecolect, Ecology and Intellect. And it was a search engine for sustainable materials so that a designer, architecture, packaging, fashion, could find sustainable material providers. In 2006, you were doing this? Yeah. That's pretty incredible. It was, it was super hard to be like an environmentally minded designer. Environmentally so, minded, period. Sure. <laughs> so I've got, I've got now two startups going, physical product, my first internet company. And I think Brian, it got Brian's attention. He said, okay, let's do this. So l let me ask you a question. I couldn't have done what I did with my business without Kevin. That's fact, right? It, mm -hmm. Because of the nature of our business. I would have been successful no matter what because I wasn't gonna let anything stop me. But this path that I'm on, I couldn't have done without Kevin. And I knew that. Do you feel like you needed Brian there? There was something you knew that Brian had that you didn't have and vice versa that you needed him there so badly? 100%. And I, there was a progression for this. When I did Crip Buns and I got in the MoMA store, I remember that phone call from that buyer saying they want to order 100 cushions. I got off the phone and I was alone by myself in my Providence apartment bedroom. <laughs> which was my global headquarters for Kripons. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, like next time I do a company, I want to have somebody to celebrate with. Like I want to have a co-founder next time. So Ecolect, I had a co-founder and um, we were actually probably a little bit too similar. And what I learned through that experience is I need to, my next business, I'm going to find a more of a complimentary co-founder. And uh, Brian was that. That's such a good, I mean, that's an obvious one. I don't think that gets said enough, but like you really can have a, partnership with somebody like you you just can't you agree right i wholeheartedly agree i would imagine if we look at any great partnership i can't think of many right now but like look at dr j and jimmy ivy i mean you think of these type of partnerships it's pretty it's pretty obvious that like that it's two people coming together to form superpower not two people with overlapping superpower so you knew that in brian and you got him to come so now, even crazier than my analogy or my story earlier about 21 years since you met, we're talking about 2007 and eight, right? That's right. 13 years ago. That's nothing. I have shit I still have to handle from 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 13 years ago, he comes to the Bay to meet you. And what is this process? So you've told me this story, and I think probably anybody interested in business or entrepreneurship knows the story of Airbnb. But I, I want to reemphasize, it's, it's pretty incredible to think about companies, Mercedes, Google, American Express, Rolex, companies that maintain this like incredible premium um, that have been around for so long, mm -hmm. Google aside, right? I mean, Google is an exception. I probably shouldn't have used them in that analogy, but you get the point. But you guys in 13 years, in my opinion, have not only created a new way of living, not only created a business that's brought incredible success, public company, but it's a beautifully constructed brand that you built, which I think doesn't go stated as much because you look at companies that are in, let's say, exchange service business, you know, Expedia, companies, Kayak, they never, companies like that never 
worried, in my opinion, about brand, not comparing your company to them, but the fact that you guys at all price ranges in all markets all over the world, apartments that look like shit all the way to mansions, but the brand, to me, has been flawlessly brought to market, the brand. That says a lot in 13 years, in my opinion, to have a brand that strikes a chord with people in that way and has proven and been successful. Because it's like you have to slow walk things sometimes when you're creating a brand and you're maintaining the brand. But you guys didn't slow walk anything. I mean, you guys built this thing and it's a monster. I know we've talked about this, but tell me like the stuff that makes people the hair on the back of their neck stand up, which is like here is... Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky in 2007 and eight, and now it's 2021, and everyone that I know knows what Airbnb is. How in God's name did this start? <laughs> well, I think probably most people, if they're in the business or tech world, have heard the story, but there's, there's actually um, kind of a prologue um, to the story that I think most people probably don't know. And it starts in Providence when I'm packing up that Jeep. And the things that didn't fit, I sold at a street sale in Providence. And there I am, it's like the end of the day, I've sold a couple t-shirts, a couple pieces of art that I made. And this guy pulls up in this red Mazda Miata and he gets out and he starts looking through my stuff. And at this point I'm like, I'm actually kind of annoyed because I just want to go home. Um, but he buys a piece of my art, a screen print that I made. And we get to talking, his name's also Joe. He's going to the Peace Corps doing a road trip before he heads out of, out of the country. And I quickly realized like this guy is totally alone in Providence that night. And for whatever reason, I invite him out for a drink. So we end up meeting at this, um, this place called Custom House. It's like this old timey bar in Providence. And he's telling me all about the Peace Corps. I'm telling him about RISD. We're having a great drink. Um, it's getting late and I motion for the bill. Uh, and I make the mistake of asking him, so where are you staying tonight? <laughs> oh man. And, and he makes it worse by saying, actually, oh, I don't have a place. And I'm thinking, oh man, what did I just do? Yes. I mean, this guy, uh, you know. He's says, cool and all, but I don't want him on my floor. Right, right. But before I know what I'm saying, I utter the words, you can stay on an airbed in my living room. I immediately regretted that. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> he says he's going to the Peace Corps, but I don't really know if he's going to the Peace Corps. Like, so there I am, set up in the living room on the airbed. Um, I'm back in my room. I'm laying there trying to fall asleep, staring at the ceiling going, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. There's a stranger in my living room. Who is this guy? <laughs> Who is this guy? And I jump up out of bed and I tiptoe to my door and I remember locking the bedroom door. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> um, everything was fine. Next morning we got brunch. Um, he sent me postcards from, uh, it, was, it was in Russia doing the Peace Corps. He, he, he became a teacher in Chicago and he hangs my piece of art on the wall in his classroom. Wow, he stayed with me ever, uh, you know, in San Francisco, on visits. Um, really, he's become a friend he, like that. He, he was at my fortieth birthday. Uh, wow, I didn't show. Couple, I know. Well, we I'm missed sorry. you. Sorry, I know. Um, uh, but didn't it, go to mine though. My, uh, it's, I'm just, all right, we even right, <laughs> next year. <laughs> next year. Um, so when I packed up to go to, to San Francisco, I put the airbed in the Jeep. All right, so fast forward. Brian was like from LA. Yeah. Uh, the, this, the same week that he comes, I go to the mailbox. There's a letter in the mail that says, Dear Joe, your rent is now 25% higher. You know, sincerely, your landlord. Landlord. <laughs> and I'm like, mother. 
I run to my online banking account. I've just quit my job. Brian and I have quit our jobs. We're going to think of some big idea. So together. the plan was you both quit jobs. You've left the book place. He left yes. LA. We're coming up with a company. We're just going to think of something together. We're in the same room again. The band is reunited. That's amazing. We're going to make a song. So like, conscious. I want this on the record. 2007 yes. or eight? Seven. Seven. Brian Chesky moves back to the Bay and the two of you have committed because that's big because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of being an entrepreneur that's like you really have to put yourself against all odds for a second like leave your job can't figure out where your meal is going to come from I'm up all night but that's part of it right like you could have maintained your job and maybe it wouldn't have worked he could have stayed in LA but maybe it wouldn't have worked you have to put yourself in that kind of desperate situation especially then yeah I think we both realized, hey, look, we're 26 or so years old. Um, this is the time. The we're in the perfect city to do something together. We know that we can we can like jam together and create like great music. Like we know that like we can make great songs together. Um, and so we were so excited, Rich. Like I remember, like just the, the electric feeling, like in the room, was like, yes, like he's here, like we're doing this. But you had no business, no idea what we were going to make. Amazing. Um, and so I, I get the letter. My heart sinks into my stomach. I'm like, oh, F. Like, we have a math problem. Brian has the same issue. He's got no income. And we're like, we're now weeks away from getting evicted from our apartment. And so we have to, like, figure out how to make some extra cash. Our backs are against the wall. The storm cloud forms over our apartment. The, the joy, like, quickly it's over. fades. It's over. Like, it's like, why am I here? Exactly. Like, yeah. what, what a great move, right? Yeah. Um, and I will never forget, um, I'm sitting in the living room. I've got my laptop open because I'm looking at the website for a design conference coming to San Francisco that is so big. It says hotels in San Francisco are sold out in big red letters. And I'm thinking we're going to this conference. Uh, where are people going to stay if they're coming last minute? And I, I look up over the edge of the laptop into the vastness of the living room. <laughs> <laughs> the fields. The fields, right. The field of dreams. Um, and I thought, man, what if somebody just stayed here? You know, like we're going to the conference, they could come with us. Um, I've got the airbed that I brought from RISD. <laughs> we could just inflate that on the floor and, you know, charge way less than the exorbitant rates at the hotels. But we could do more than that, create an experience for the guests. We'll pick them up from the airport. We'll cook breakfast in the morning. We'll give them a, a subway pass around the city. This is all now coming to you, this idea of how to treat this potential first Client. Yeah, it's like, yes, it's just like, imagine the experience. Like, yeah. it's not just a place to sleep, it's the whole experience. Um, I emailed Brian, I said, hey, what do you think we had people stay with us? I got the airbed, and actually I said, there's room for two more airbeds. <laughs> so, uh, he's like, I love the idea. And that night I'm falling asleep thinking, what do we call this thing? Designer's bed and breakfast, kind of like a bed and breakfast. But they're sleeping on an airbed, so we'll call it the airbed and breakfast. Email him back. He loves oh the name. Oh my God. Hold on. Let's just talk through that one second. <laughs> I mean, so simple, but so beautiful. So can't call it design bed and breakfast. Too niche. Too niche. Can't just call it Joe and Brian's B and B because that's not what we're on. No, <laughs> we're and not, we're not retired. We're not retired. <laughs> and Airbnb as we knew it has come about because, Hey, I'm giving them an air mattress, Airbnb. That's it. That's it. That's amazing. That's, I get chills hearing shit like that. I really do. Salts. Airbnb from that conversation 13 years ago. Airbnb from hosting three guests on three airbeds in our living room, 
during a design conference where we made $1,000, we saved our apartment. They had, the guests had an incredible experience. Because just for a second, imagine like you're a business traveler, you're going to a conference in a city. You leave the conference and you go back to the seclusion of your hotel room completely by yourself in a generic kind of room versus like come to our apartment. We're cooking meals together. Our friends are coming over. It's incredibly social. We're throwing parties. They're meeting people. But it didn't exist. No one did that back then. Not really. It was, I mean, there may have been regional or local versions of it, I bet, maybe. I never heard of it. I never would have done that in New York or had somebody mm. stay in my house. Um, it seems now, I mean, but then it was crazy. But, you know, when you, when you ask somebody that's really successful, like, did you ever imagine this? And they say, no, I actually don't believe it. Because part of that journey or that mission is like, you do imagine it, mm. right? You do at some point imagine it. It, it takes different iterations but you imagined it so you couldn't have got that excited and called brian because you thought you just made like 30 bucks you got that excited because you both instantly were like this is this is our mission this is our quest is that what happened it wasn't until the guest left that the gears began to turn and we thought did we just get paid to make friends with people <laughs> there's got to be other people kind of like us who want to help pay off the rent and have extra space and we love to host people from around the world. And so the, the gears began to turn and we realized, you know, we're two designers, we need, you know, a real engineering expert, software engineer. And so the, the guy was my roommate that moved out for Brian to move in was a guy named Nate Bosharzik. Nate was a Harvard graduate computer science major. Um, him and I were buddies and roommates for a couple months in San Francisco. I found him on Craigslist of all places. Uh, Nate and I, built an affinity for each other because we worked really hard. I was working on crit buns at night in the living room. He was working on his own websites at night. And we both were saying, thinking the same things, even though we didn't know it, which is if I ever need an engineer, I'm calling Nate. And if he never needs a designer, he's calling me. So I pick up the phone. I said, Nate, let's get a drink. Uh, I meet him up in San Francisco and I'd say, we just had the craziest thing happen. These three people stayed in the living room on airbeds, And it was awesome. Like, we made a, like a lot of income for us at the time, a thousand dollars. And they was like, this is really interesting. Like this is a concept that gets people actually, actually off the internet into the real world to like meet each other and like connect. And he loved the idea. He got it right away. Got it right away. Um, so he was conceptually on board, but Brian and I had to convince him to now like really commit mm -hmm. and like become a third co-founder. And we needed a good hook. Um, and so, this is now like we're in like January of 2008. And we're like, okay, what's the next big conference where the hotels sell out? Well, in Austin, Texas, every spring. South by. South by Southwest. And we thought that is the place where some of the greatest tech companies have gone to launch to the moon, right? Twitter, Foursquare, others. Like we thought, well, that's clearly our success path. Yep. Let's go launch, relaunch at South by Southwest. So Nate loves the idea. We have just a couple weeks. We, you know, Red Bull all-nighters were designing and coding the three of us in the living room. Um, but we had to convince Nate to, to even want to do this in the first place. So I'll never forget Brian and I going to his apartment. And in the elevator going up, um, we realized if we pitch him the whole kind of kitchen sink of what we want to do, he, he's going he's gonna to opt out because there's not enough time to build it. We got like three weeks. So he said, well, what if we just go, we'll call it uh, air bed and breakfast light. <laughs> 
Same great concept, half the code. Half the code. <laughs> that was your sales pitch to get him to stay? Yes, and it worked. It, well, <laughs> so it was really just like you knew Nate wasn't staying there for 46 straight hours, 48 straight hours. He, he, he is very you know pragmatic about how he spends his time. And so he's, he signed on board, we built the next version, and we thought, Rich, this is it. Like South by Southwest, we're, we're gonna crush it. Like all the press, all the fanfare. We ended up getting two hosts and two guests. The and whole time? One of them was us. <laughs> you were your own guest? Brian stayed with one of the hosts. And um, by all metrics, it was a complete failure, a, a, a hor horrific flop of epic proportions. And coming out of that, Nate was like, all right, this concept isn't going anywhere. Uh, I'm going back to Boston to be with his girlfriend at the time. Or starts start working on other things. And the band is kind of starting to unravel a little bit. And it's like, oh man. Like, Were you guys down, you and Brian also? Yeah, I mean, it was depressing, right? Like you put all this effort in and you think you're gonna have a big splash and it's a cool concept, but people didn't get it. <laughs> people thought it was weird. Um, they didn't know how to, it needed a couple of improvements. Because at the time it was, it was, it was like classified. So you paid in cash on, on arrival. And I'll tell you, like, you don't want to have a business where your business model is paying cash to somebody inside of a house. Like, that's just probably not. Yeah. Right. So um, Brian and I, the next couple months, we're, we're scheming. We're thinking, okay, like, let's reconfigure. People want to travel beyond conferences. Let's make this more of a travel so website. Let's bring payments online. Like, why, why couldn't you use a credit card to book a house somewhere? Literally at that time, that was impossible in the internet. Yeah. Um, so we go to Nate and Nate's like, yeah, guys, but it's a marketplace. This is so hard to get supply. You need a good hook. And at this time in 2008, there was one thing that dominated headlines. Let me think about it. It was political. Political before that political in nature. There was a up and up and coming Senator out of Illinois. Obama. Yeah. And what, yeah. Obama is, is leading up to democratic national convention. In oh, Illinois. is this the serial? We're almost talk to me almost <laughs> so these headlines of obama attracts a crowd of seventy-five thousand people in portland oregon you know tens of thousands of people here he eventually gets the nomination for the, the party and he's scheduled to speak in denver colorado at the dnc and they move his talk from the you know the, the basketball arena to invesco field so from twenty thousand to eighty thousand people and now suddenly the dnc has to fill an eighty thousand person stadium Meanwhile, there's only 20,000 hotel rooms in Denver. And we see these headlines in June and we go, wait a second. We're gonna relaunch for a third time in time for the DNC and ride the coattails of all this press and this housing crisis, which is what they called it. How are you funding all this at this point? This is just out of our savings account. Got it. Like, you know, we're, we're our lifestyles are like the most bare minimum <laughs> that you could imagine. Like ramen noodle. <laughs> Yes. sharing a place yes. coding all night yeah there's literally nothing else going on in our lives uh so that whole summer we cranked nate built a payment system to allow credit card transactions he built a reputation system so that people could leave reviews for each other we built profiles so you could see who it is that you're staying with um so this was the formidable of summer formulative yes. summer incredibly formulative summer um and we i'll never forget um we relaunched our fancy website I call, uh, I got a contact at CNN. I called CNN. There I am pitching air bed and breakfast. With on the no business yet. No business yet. And 
they're basically like, uh, we're not interested, thanks. They hang up. So we're like, okay, let's reconfigure our approach here. So we said, well, let's, let's contact some of these local Denver bloggers that are writing about the, the DNC and the housing crisis. We write to them, they love the story, they pick it up, and suddenly we get a couple new listings in Denver. And then suddenly we get a call from the NBC station in Denver. It says, oh, we saw you know, an article about you on the local blogs. We wanna do an interview with one of your hosts. And so they do a live interview with you know, a host in Denver talking about how she can't wait to welcome into Obama supporters. All the other local network networks Pick call it up. us. Oh, they all love it. They all do stories. Then the, the Denver, uh, Rocky Mountain Gazette or um, Rocky Mountain. This is news. all unfolding. Like you had no expectation. This we, is it. And, and we had no PR experience, by the way. There's no firm. You have no experience in anything. Right. Just builders. We're just builders. We're just making calls, pitching things. And um, before we know it, like we eventually then get a call from CNN that says, we read what's going on. We want to do a story about you guys. And at this point, we went from zero to 800 hosts in Denver in a matter of like three weeks. Oh my God. This is insane, Rich. Like, you guys just camped out in Denver? Or were you back in the Bay? We're back in the Bay. We had You're people on the ground. programming and- Handing out flyers in street corners. Like we did everything to try to get hosts to sign up. And we ended up having like 100 people stay on the site for the DNC. And for that weekend, Rich, it was glorious. Is this a moment you'll never forget <laughs> I'll in your never life? never forget. I'm like, oh my God, our website's working. Like people are paying us. Like uh, I'll never forget customer service number. It was my cell phone. <laughs> oh my <laughs> so God. My phone started This is ringing. crazy. I'm listening to the beginning, the <laughs> birth of the baby that is Airbnb. It was this weekend. Thank you, President Obama. Well, my phone's going off. I'm like, oh my God, people are actually calling us. Oh, they have like actual issues. Like I'm solving like problems in real time for people who are traveling. What are they telling you? Like, Joe, the oven doesn't work? Yeah, all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> the hairdryer doesn't work. The, the you know, like. Um, this crip bun is yeah, <laughs> not as soft. Um, and that weekend, I remember thinking like, oh my God, we did it. Like, this is our rocket ship to the moon. Like, we're actually taking off. And suddenly, as soon as we went up and the DNC ended, they oh, came right back no. down. <laughs> If, but but were you in the door already? Did you know? I, I thought if if there were political conventions every weekend, we had a very successful business ahead of us. So what do you do? How do you, so this is now a year in, you're probably in 2008, yeah. nine. We're, we're in the late 2008. This is um, September. By the way, when the numbers were ticking up, uh, we thought this is a good time to raise money. Let's go, let's go meet investors in Silicon Valley. And so we got introduced to 20 people over email. 10 returned our email, four met us for coffee, zero invested in the business. Who met you for coffee? I have to hear. Uh, you know, that's maybe for later. Ron Conway. Uh, uh, I, I, don't worry. They, they didn't invest. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> All right. Those four were irrelevant. That's for later. Um, uh, actually I very fondly remember our first investor pitch. It was at university cafe in Palo Alto, which is like the hub for pitching. Everyone's in a hoodie and there's like a guy in a suit and a guy in a hoodie at every table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Brian and I are there. We've got the laptop open. The investor shows up late. Um, 
he sits high and he goes and orders a smoothie. He takes another 20 minutes and he sits down between us and he's got this smoothie, like a pineapple and a big straw and an umbrella. And I go into the pitch, Brian's pitching, I'm going to the demo, clicking through the website, through the deck, and he's going <laughs> the whole time, the whole time. He just goes <laughs> and we're about halfway through the deck and he gets up and he goes, okay. And he, he walks out. And I look at Brian, Brian looks at me, I'm like, Shut up. Is he paying the parking meter? Yeah, he's, he's coming back. That blatantly fucking rude. He never came back. <laughs> what a dick, he must, he must hate himself. If he didn't kill himself already, he must hate himself. I slurped on the Airbnb pitch. I just, I was like, is this how all investor pitches go? Slurper, where is that slurper now? <laughs> that passed on Airbnb. <laughs> Well, um, needless to say, every investor meeting kind of went that way. Um, one of the law firms we tried to engage with to help us set up the corporation actually laughed us out of a conference room. Like, literally, the guy was like, hey, Jimmy, get in here. You got to get a load of this. And the two of them were like sitting there like laughing. Like, people actually stay in other people's houses? You got to be kidding me. Oh, my God. And they're like elbowing each other. I'm like, Brian, let's go. Like, were you down? Are you kidding me? This was like one of the most depressing moments so of my life. But you weren't ready to give up. Hell no. That's the point. You were down, but you didn't even think twice about giving up on no, your idea. No, your... no, no. Because we knew. You knew. From firsthand experience, the magic that unfolded. So is the bottom line that the, the, the experience that that first customer had in a lot of ways gave you the gasoline to build this? We knew something that they didn't. These investors they by seeing yes. the response to that we had firsthand a real world firsthand experience when you knew that person wasn't a one of one you knew they were out there yeah because they were like we're just ordinary guys like there had to be other so people like us passed? everybody passed and so now like our traffic drops off a cliff we have no investors um nate's kind of like guys uh i don't think this is really going to work out and we're now back into um, what's called the trough of sorrow. Mm, this is the trough, the of, trough sorrow. of sorrow. So there's a couple stages to uh, startup. There's um, the build phase, which is no growth. There's the, the what's called the tech crunch of initiation. When you feel a little bit. Well, when you get blo blogged about on tech crunch back in the day, that got was it, a really it. big so deal. So it's like you get acknowledged as real. Yeah, like your traffic spikes up. There's the wearing off of novelty. And then the trough of sorrow. That's the make or break, Trophosaro. Trophosaro is there's no growth, there's no product market fit. So you literally have, it's like two gears that don't touch, there's no forward momentum, like you're stuck. You gotta get the gears together, product and market gotta come, gotta touch. The trough of sorrow? Yes, it can last for months or years while you try to figure it out. And we were stuck in it and it was, it's dark. That's when most, that's the hardest part. That breaks people. Breaks people, I guarantee It's when you, what doesn't connect? What are the product and market? So you have a product. You know the product, you believe in it, market has a market. You haven't figured out how to communicate it, the right offering, it's not there yet. That That's not, probably drives people crazy. Well, it, it, it's the part where if you're not really passionate about what you're doing. You get exposed. It's easy to give up. Yeah, you give up, you get exposed. It's you're not like, real. ah, it's too hard. Let's go work on something else. Nobody likes it. That Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But the, were the three of you, or was it just you and Brian? Nate was like, I don't see it. Um, Nate was skeptical. Um, I think in his heart of hearts, he really believed in, in what we're doing. Um, but he's, again, back in Boston. The band's kind of now apart again. And this is where, like, in the Trophistar, I think the only way out is through creativity. Mm. 
And so one night, it's two in the morning, Brian and I are in the kitchen at our Roush Street apartment in San Francisco. And we're just trying to keep our spirits up. And we start joking. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if like, we're called airbed and breakfast. Like if we did something with the breakfast side, the airbeds aren't really working out, but the breakfast side, what if we made like cereal or something that we could give to hosts to give to their guests? And we're like, this is the peak Obama McCain, right? And we're like, what if we made Obama cereal? Ha <laughs> wouldn't that be funny? Cause like Obama merch was just like selling like yeah. crazy. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Obama, like we could picture it. Like it's a blue box. It's like rays of light coming from out, like a caricature of his face, of, you know, it's big smile. And the tagline would be the breakfast of change. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a good laugh and then we're like, yeah, we'd, we'd have to make a McCain drunk? cereal too. Are you guys drunk? We actually were not. Um, we couldn't afford alcohol. <laughs> So we go research McCain. He was an officer in the Navy. Uh, and we realized, well, clearly his cereal was called Captain McCain's. Captain McCain's. A maverick in every bite. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're a genius. So we imagine that cereal. And Rich, one thing led to another. And we actually figured out how to make breakfast cereal, which is a good question. What do you mean? You rebranded an existing cereal? You made your own well, cereal? Well, it's a good question to ask yourself. How do you make breakfast cereal? <laughs> Yeah, I've never asked myself. I mean, I know how to make myself a bowl, yeah. I don't think a lot of people have asked themselves that question. I certainly had it in my life. But I found myself posed with this challenge. How am I going to make breakfast cereal? Uh, and so I called Kellogg and General Mills, as one would do. Obvious. Uh, they hung up <laughs> before I could finish the Also pitch. obvious, yeah. I changed my tack. I said, well, let's call cereal companies in the Bay Area. So they at least listened to the pitch and were polite and then declined. declined. And so we're back to ground zero. How do you make breakfast cereal? And I was like, well, maybe we don't have to make it. Maybe it's already made. If we just design the box, we can go to the store, buy the cereal, buy the cereal and take the bag out of one box and put it into our box. Yep. And so I found a RISD alum who has a print shop in Berkeley. I give him the pitch. Fred, here's what we want to do. Fred, it's me from Crip Buns. <laughs> we have no money, <laughs> but we'll pay you on a commission after every sale. And he goes, you really want this, don't you? <laughs> there, see, do you guys hear this same exact answer three times? I've heard this. I go, yes, whatever you can do, Fred. And he goes, all right, I'll make you five hundred of each box. And in that moment, Rich, I realized we now had a limited edition collector's box of a Barack Obama and Captain McCain and cereal. We could number each one out of five hundred on the Imagine top. Imagine we had NFTs now. Man, oh my god! Right. This was it. Uh, so we, I pulled together all the designs, got a caricature artist, um, beautifully designed boxes, got them printed. We did product shots on the website, obamaos.com. And we mailed the boxes to every press outlet we can think of. The morning shows, Oprah, Ellen, like everybody got these boxes and they loved it. We got so many calls back. Uh, CNN did a live interview with us about breakfast cereal. <laughs> And every order that would come in at the end of the day, we'd take the money that we made, we'd go to the store, buy as much cereal as we could pay for, put it in my Jeep, go back to the house and rebox it. And our take that plastic bag out, yeah. put it in the new box. And then hot glue it on the top, seal it up, and then ship it out the next day. And you're shipping it to the people that had the agreed to yeah. host people. Yeah. And by the way, we sold these boxes for $40 a box. To the host? To anybody that wanted to buy it. Anybody that went to the website. Wow. This was a, from Airbnb's website? On our website, obamos.com, catmccains.com. All these press outlets covered it and created all this, this buzz. Um, 
And so we'd run to the store and like, I'd have like three shopping carts full of like O's. <laughs> Looking back on it, do you think you had an actual strategy or were you in that tranche? What is it called again? Tranche of sorrow? The trough of sorrow. Trough of sorrow. Yeah, I yeah. guess that makes more sense. What was that? Were we really thinking this was going to unlock Airbnb? All we knew is that uh, our website wasn't working. We had free time on our hands and that anything with Obama's face on it sold like hotcakes. And we thought, well, let's capitalize on that and make something that people want to buy. So uh, our kitchen became like, like an assembly line of cereal. And Brian and I had this whole system down where we'd you know, pack it, hot glue it. I have way too many burn marks on my hands from that, those days. Um, and we ended up selling out of Obama's. 500 boxes, $40 a box, $20,000 from breakfast cereal. And at this time, because we had no investors, we took out credit cards to fund the business. And you'll remember this from our childhood, those binders where we put in baseball cards. Yeah. We had those, but we took the baseball cards out and we put in credit cards. You were just supplying for cards? We just had pages of credit cards that we were funding and maxing them out to like $5,000 and we take out another one. And so we jokingly say that we actually did raise a round of funding. We called it the visa round, <laughs> except visa didn't know visa, about it. Visa, MasterCard, Discovery, <laughs> Amex. Amex, Diners Club. So we were in a hole and man, I gotta tell you, that was like. How much do you guys charge on the cards? I mean, we maxed out $5,000. That's all we could. Of every card? Every card. And I had like $25,000 in debt with no way to pay it off. And I have to tell you, it's like the anxiety that that caused for me was like, no, I feel like if you don't, if you don't know what it's like to have multiple credit card debts in your mid twenties, you're not an entrepreneur with no path to pay them down. They're only, no path. You start only, thinking of consolidating. They're going up you, every month. Yeah. Those bills, not down. Paying the minimums doesn't no, matter, no, right? It doesn't matter. That was like, I'm just like sweating thinking this about it. This is 2009, eight uh, still? 2008 still. Um, so finally we sell this breakfast cereal. We're able to just basically break even, like we pay off our credit cards back to zero. And um, we're sort of like at the end of the rope. The election's over, the hubbub's done, the website's dwindling, we're making $200 a week in fees, it's not enough to keep it going. And one night, um, we go out to dinner with a couple guys from this website called justin.tv. Uh, they were doing the first live broadcast, you know, uh, website back in 2008. And, they went through a famous incubator in, in Silicon Valley called Y Combinator. Of course. And so we're at dinner with them and they were mentoring us and we're like giving them all our woes and we're like, oh, you know, we don't think this is gonna work. You know, Nate's on the East Coast and business $200 a week. And they go, you guys need to apply to Y Combinator. You need to go through the, the, the incubator program. And we get all excited. We're like, okay, maybe this is it. So we get on the website on our phones and we're like, we look at it and we go, uh, the deadline was yesterday and they go well we know the guy that runs it we'll email him so at dinner they emailed paul graham he writes him back literally over dinner and says i'll make an exception they can apply but it has to be by midnight tonight brian and i drop our forks <laughs> we race home we get on the link that he's emailed us we start filling out this like lengthy application we're about to hit send it's like 11 30 p.m and we realize oh we should probably tell nate <laughs> that we're applying. Nate's in Boston. Nate's in Boston. So I call him and clearly wake him up. I'm like, Nate, hey, we're applying to an incubator. If we get it, you know, if we get to the next step, you have to fly out for an interview. 
And, you know, uh, he's like, uh, what? Okay, fine, whatever. Clearly had no idea what he was agreeing yes. to. <laughs> um, so we get a call back two days later that we got to the next stage. And the next stage is an interview process. Um, and the interview process, as we came to learn, was 10 minutes in a small conference room with the partners from Y Combinator, and they grill you mm-hmm. like, like, like an interrogation of your company or your idea. And so Nate flies out begrudgingly. He's like, all right, I'll, I guess I said yes. And we spent the day before practicing in our living room, berating each other with questions like, what's your growth rate? How are you going to market? How are you going to scale, get more hosts? Like, and we would like pepper each other with questions, <laughs> like actually practice. Because this was like our last shot, Rich. Yeah. This like, is it. This is it. This is like, you know, we sink or swim. Uh, there was no other plan B. Um, this would be plan E. At <laughs> basically. Yeah. So we're about to drive down to Mountain View to do this, this interview. And as we're leaving, I go to grab a box of Obamos and Cap McCain's. Something, oh, we'll give it to him as a gift. Brian and they see this and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'll just bring this down. They're like, no, 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 don't bring the cereal. And they turn their backs and as they, as they go through the door, I turn back and I put them in my bag. Okay. So we get down to Mountain View and we're in the waiting area. The door opens and three guys in hoodies walk out. Their shoulders are slumped. Like they lost it. They lost it. And I just think, I'm like, my heart, like, I gulp and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, all right. We go in, we sit down. Brian is an amazing pitch man. He starts the pitch, uh, gets interrupted by Paul Graham, who says to him, You mean people are actually doing this? <laughs> and Brian goes, Yeah. And Paul goes, That's weird. <laughs> and in that moment, I'm like, They're, uh, We're done. We're done. And the whole the rest of the interview just was like a slow decline. I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what's next? I'm thinking like, well, what else, what else can I work on in my life? And we bombed the whole interview. We're walking out the door and I feel the, this weight in my messenger bag and, and I realize, oh, it's cereal boxes. And I go, guys, wait a second. And I run back in and I go, Paul, and I pull it out. I said, we got this for you. I hand him a bomb And he goes, what do you mean you got this for me? And I go, well, actually we made this and I told him the story in, in a minute. And he goes, you mean you funded your company on breakfast cereal? I go, yeah. And he goes, huh. And he turns around and he puts it on the shelf behind his desk. Now, they have a thing with Y Combinator that is if you get accepted, they call you and you have to make a decision on the, on the spot, spot. Yeah, right? It's one of those things. And so we're driving back in the red Jeep up the 280 back to San Francisco. I'm in the driving seat. Brian's in the passenger and in the back. We're driving along like depressed as hell. Like I'm thinking, okay. No chance you got this. Yeah, like uh, what's next? Brian's phone rings. Hello? Oh, hey, Paul. Yes, it's Brian here. Yeah. Hello? Hello? No, you lost service? Lost service on that one spot on the 280 where AT&T has a terrible oh signal. Oh my God. I'm like, oh my God. I turn the, 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 the Jeep becomes, I was loose Hamilton for a few minutes. I t- turn that into an F1 formula car and I'm a zipping down the <laughs> 280 um, trying to get to reception. I pull to the side of the road. The phone rings again. Yes, hey, Paul, this is Brian. No, no, so, so sorry. Uh, no, no, we lost our connection. Okay. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay, you want to offer us a spot in the incubator? Well, let me ask the guys. <laughs> guys, he wants to offer a spot. Take it. <laughs> yeah, take it, bro. <laughs> yeah. uh, Paul, we'll accept. Wow. And we got into the program. And what did that mean? Well, it meant that for three months, we would live together, we would work together like 
uh, soldiers because we made a decision. We said, you know what? We have three months. We're going to cut everything else out of our lives. And for three months, we're going to go all in on this and give it everything that we have, 110%. And if at the end of three months it doesn't work, we'll go our separate ways. But at least we'll know that we gave it everything that we had. And we all made that commitment to each other. And so we were, we were like soldiers. We woke up at, at like 8 a.m. We cooked breakfast together. Uh, Nate was sleeping on an airbed in my bedroom. Uh, we went to the gym together. We worked for 16 hours a day, um, uh, six and a half days a week. We took Sunday afternoons off. And um, in our first session with Paul Graham, he asked us the most profound question. He said, where are your customers? And we said, well, <laughs> we don't really have, we don't have any, many, yet. but New York City is showing promise. We had about 25, 30 hosts in New York. And he goes, so your customers are in New York City, but you're here in Mountain View. And we're befuddled. We're like, yeah, we're here for your program. And he goes, what are you still doing here? Go to New York. Go meet your people. And in that moment, Rich, he broke through the myth of Silicon Valley, which is that you have to do things that scale, right? Like you could never go meet your early customers because how is that possibly scalable? You have to use code to scale. But he gave us permission to do things that don't scale. And it was so freeing for us that we said, yeah, we could go to New York. We could go meet our early customers. And we're there looking at the, the website of all these hosts. And we see that they have terrible photos. People don't know how to take pictures of their apartments. It's, it's pictures at night, the toilet seats up. And we thought, well, let's, let's go solve this problem. Let's go just go take pictures ourselves. So we email the host. We say, we want to send a professional photographer to come to your place to take pictures. Was it Nathan? It was us. <laughs> we take great pictures. We meet hosts. We get feedback. We fix the website. And um, revenue goes from $200 to $400. And Paul Graham looks at our graph the next week and says, what are you still doing here? Go back to New York. And we did this week over week, and revenue doubled every single week. And we've never looked back from that moment. This is crazy. So let me ask you a question. Let's jump to now. 2021, the same year that you guys went public, and 13 years after this insane story you just told me, did you ever, in your wildest, wildest, wildest dreams, imagine that the three of you are capable of building what you guys have built today? I want to say yes. <laughs> I think this has gone beyond all of our wildest dreams. So from 2008 to 2021, and let's say that 2021, when Airbnb went public, being one of them, what were two other moments in this 13-year run where you guys looked at each other and said, holy shit, and when you pinched each other or pinched yourselves, don't pinch each other, that'd be weird. Um, <laughs> because I would imagine... There was many of them, but there's always those moments where you guys just knew that you took this to the next level. And then let's jump back till sure. today. Um, I remember during Y Combinator, we had a goal, which was to, to make $1,000 a week in revenue. And uh, that for us was enough to be what's called ramen profitable. 
which is where you can pay rent and eat ramen noodles, and eat ramen noodles which for us was I like, love these Silicon Valley terms. Man. <laughs> well, that was great, right? It's like unlimited runway. We didn't need to take investment necessarily. Like we could keep our equity in the company. Um, it was a, a powerful position to be in where you didn't need money. And our lifestyles were like as meager as they could be. Um, and I'll never forget the day when we actually hit $1,000. We were so obsessed with making $1,000. We printed out graphs and we put them on our bathroom mirror. We put them in the refrigerator next to our computer monitors that showed our future growth in a red line at $1,000 a week. We were so obsessed with this number. We would look at it while we're brushing our teeth at night. We'd stare at it while we're opening the fridge. <laughs> and it became like our single goal. And I'll never forget the moment that we hit it. It's like, it was an impossible task. That was like a new bit of oxygen. Oh, are you kidding me, man? Like we had a, like the three of us danced in the living room. We had a bottle of champagne. There's probably it, very few feelings like that first feeling of like, we don't need money anymore. Right. Right. Like, like there was suddenly like the cloudy sky started to clear and I could see a blue part, like a little fragment of a blue sky that we were moving towards. And it wow. was just, it was like, that's all the energy you needed. That's it. And then tell me another one a few years later. Get, let's jump ahead a few years later where you obviously are Airbnb now. Do you know that? Do you remember doing mm. Super Bowl parties at the 4040 in 2012 or 11? Do you remember that? There was a woman named Remind Amy. Me. That's something that did your marketing. Oh, yeah. That was my events I did at 4040. Really? Yeah. Oh. Isn't that crazy? I've just done so much shit. Wow. I know. I, I didn't know we had that connection. We do. We have many. Amazing. Um, tell me another thing along the way. So 2000 nine-ish you've made a thousand a week but that ain't it and we jumped all the way ahead to 2021 when you went public tell me a moment in between then when the three of you again knew that you had changed the kind of trajectory of what you were building there's so many stories to to, to pick from uh the one that comes to mind right now actually started here in new york which is in 2012 october hurricane sandy had just hit manhattan and the boroughs in Jersey. And we get an email the very next day from a host in Brooklyn. Her name's Shell. And she says, Dear Airbnb, I've got five empty guest rooms in my Brooklyn loft. How do I volunteer those for free to those displaced by the hurricane? And we get this email and it gets spread around the company like wildfire. And we all think like, wow, what a, what a great idea. But we have this payment system and people got to transact to get a reservation. And somebody goes, uh, but why? <laughs> like, and we go, yeah, you're right. So we do this engineering marathon, right? Pizzas, Red Bulls, a couple all-nighters. And in a, like two days, we have the ability for Shell and every other New Yorker on our site to offer their home for free to those displaced who literally have nowhere to go. Because like people are stranded inside hotels, by the way. Like like there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, so Shell and a couple hundred people here in Manhattan sign up and offer their places for free. There was nowhere, by the way, in New York at that time because it like resulted in a power outage in half the city. Right. I ended up moving into a hotel on 54th Street for oh like God. two weeks. My house had no power. There was nowhere to stay. So this was an inflection point. Well, this was an inflection point in seeing um, the power of our platform even go beyond the business. Yep. Because um, the day after that, we get a call from Bloomberg's office who says they want to partner with us to because they have nowhere to place people. And so he holds a press conference um, thanking us for, uh, you know, us stepping up in this difficult time. And it was in that moment where we saw like this um, superpower of our host community to offer a basic need, shelter, 
in, in a time of crisis. And so that moment really like inspired us. And since then we've built out what's now airbnb.org, uh, which is exactly that. It's a platform to house people in times of crisis. And we've to date, we've housed a hundred thousand people in 70 countries around the world. Wow. Anytime you see anything on TV, a fire, a flood, a tsunami, an earthquake. You're activating. A tornado, yeah, we activate. Our host community is incredible. They volunteer their homes for free or at a discount. And we take the same amazing technology that makes it easy for people to find a vacation home, and we port it over, and we want people to find shelter when they're fleeing a natural disaster. That's amazing. I think that's probably where the brand got another bit of cachet added to it, which was that it represented a means to an efficient way to stay. And then all of a sudden it represented more. And I, I never understood when that happened, but it's obvious that it clearly came from Hurricane Sandy and being on the ground during these moments when you were most needed. But there was this obvious shift where Airbnb became very much like the fabric of our society and a little bit of a constant, a saving grace. And mm -hmm. it comes when you step up during these type of moments. And I would imagine you had moments like that every bit of the way. You know, we're five years into the evolution of our business and I can count, mm -hmm. I couldn't even begin to count how many times Kevin and I have been up late at night or excited over an idea or the whole company jumped up and down over like a traffic update and we're still growing. I can only imagine that like you could never even begin to recount every one of those moments. And the relationship that you have with Brian and Nathan is going to always be unlike anything else in your life. There's nothing that could ever be replicated from what the three of you went through and the stories you just told me are just the tip of the iceberg, I would imagine. But what emotions that the three of you guys had, and by the time you guys went public, I, me and you have become very close, and you know, I understand how much you care, and you have a different kind of eye uh, than most, and I think it probably dates back to your time at RISD, and you have this creative eye, and you have this attention to detail, and you see the like beauty and some darkness mm -hmm. at times, and you understand how to manifest that, and I think that's, clearly what you brought, you know, and I've been able to meet Brian. I met Nathan once or twice, but it's clear because I'm observant. I think I can see the dynamics from afar of the three of you. Mm. I would also imagine that in 13 years of growing a business, you must've wanted to kill each other multiple times. Right. But when you went public, what kind of emotions and not that it was a money thing. I know you, and I can tell anybody that knows Joe Gabbia, he does could give two shits about money. I know that that doesn't motivate you. Um, but when you went public, mm. especially after the pandemic and what you guys were able to accomplish in those two years, which could have set your company back, but instead your company more so than ever before stepped up to the plate. Um, what was that feeling like with three of you in 13 years from these like ups and downs and these moments of like complete hopelessness? and waiting on this dude to call you in bad service to tell you he's investing. <laughs> and now 13 years later, you're going public and it's Airbnb, a name that my eight-year-old could knows, that my she knew when she was four. How did that feel for you guys? I, it's hard to describe, um, but I, I remember December 10th of 2020 was the morning we went public. We're doing a, a live broadcast with, with NASDAQ 
you know, from our apartments, we're all, you know, COVID staying at home, the whole thing. And, uh, it's all live streamed out to, to Times Square here. And, um, I remember, uh, the, we got to ring the bell remotely. And so, uh, the team came up with the most clever way to ring the bell, which is they created a short film of our hosts all over the world ringing their doorbells. And we aired this film, That's so cool. like people, you know, ringing cowbells, pushing buttons. Um, and then suddenly we were a public company. And I just remember thinking like, wow, like what is the power of human imagination to take something that 13 years ago literally did not exist in any form whatsoever and create something that could, you know, command, you know, a capital, a market valuation of what we, what we're at. Um, it was so overwhelming, Rich, like the, the, like just the power of creativity, the power of ideas, the power of, of like the imagination that we all, we all have to create something and to, st- to witness it at that grand scale. I can't even <laughs> last imagine. December was- and what about the power of those multiple calls you made when the person on the other end said, you really want this, don't you? And that's the difference a lot, like really just like wanting it and making sure that no matter what, you get it done. And it's not a skill you can teach, mm-hmm. but I would imagine that, you know, the three of you probably still can't even fathom what you've built, right? I must feel at times out of body. I mean, pre-COVID, I walk into our office, I pinch myself every day. I'm yeah. like, I'm surrounded by amazing people, some of the best in the world at what they do. We're doing a service that economically empowers people around the world. We've we've put over $100 billion into the pockets of average everyday people who just rent, you know, rooms on our site and, and houses. And uh, of which 55% are women uh, in virtually every country on the planet. Uh, you know, and, and through that, you know, in, in a best case scenario, people are connecting with each other and forming, you know, all kinds of new relationships and connections around the world. And ideally, Rich, hopefully making the world a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. like helping create more understanding with who the other is. Um, I, there's one story that comes to mind of a rabbi here in the New York City area who told me a story once. He said, Joe, I traveled once to the south of France and um, I booked this place near Cannes. I knock on the door, the host greets me, and then suddenly behind him is his husband. And Joe, I, I don't believe in same-sex marriage. And he said, in that moment, I had to make a decision. Do I leave and go stay at a hotel or do I follow through with this experience? And he said, you know what, something inspired me. I said, you know what, I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna stay uh, you know, at least a night. And he wanted to tell me that uh, the course of his stay, he got to know his hosts. They took him all around the south of France. They had shared breakfast in the morning. He got to talk to them and understand them. And he left, came back to New York. And he said to me, um, I began to understand that uh, what was most important in that relationship wasn't the gender. It was just that two people loved each other. Wow. And he said, I now support. No. And his whole, his whole thought process has changed. Yeah. Look, that doesn't happen every day, of course, but like, no, but it's representative of, you get to experience something outside of your normal yep. day, you know, with, you know, uh, you know, tracks that we all follow in, in, in our day to day. And by traveling, you know, it's going to another place. It's going to experience something that's not familiar to you. Yep. And um, by doing it in a way where you connect people through, you know, the intimacy of a home, hopefully, you know, 
if we're at our best, we're helping people understand each other, to share ideas, cultures, languages, food, experiences yeah. with each other um, so that you know, we can all have this much more understanding of, of the other. I didn't realize that. I remember Ron Conway brought KD and I to meet you. Yeah. And instantly I understood how much more powerful your platform was. This was 2016 than I thought it was. It went from something that I imagined like a kayak. Like, here I go. I can stay anywhere, anytime, to understanding what you guys were like, how you were wired, what this company was built on, what was important to you, what you were trying to create, and then understood the multiple verticals of the business and the different, like, iterations of the business that had existed through the years mm -hmm. and what the motivation was. And it, it's really, you know, I think goes a little bit unsaid at times what an incredible philanthropist you personally are, you know, what you've done with Kevin and I, what you've done in your own time across many different organizations and just how you approach life and how your kind of mind is, you know, and, and you're either once again, like an entrepreneur, you're either wired to want to give back and, think that way or not and you are um well and, and I, that comes from the, i think the spirit of silicon valley which is the pay it forward mentality it really is right yeah, it really it's is like, it's actually something pretty incredible that like billion like in the billionaire pledge like all the, the thought process and, and mm -hmm. i have a philosophy that is like everybody there maybe and i'm not saying you're like this knew it was this or they weren't going to make it and because they understand that this skill that they had, that unlock, that ability to utilize technology to change the world, mm -hmm. was that there was a duty in some ways to give that back. And I, you know, outside of athletes who I always say are is like innately the most philanthropic people I've ever met because, yeah. and, and people from my hip hop um, managing days, because you get out of an environment that you so desperately didn't want to be in. Mm -hmm. And your instinct is right away to give back to that environment, mm -hmm. you know? And I think in a lot of ways, that's some of the feeling I got from being in San Francisco and mm -hmm. being around these founders of tech companies. Mm -hmm. um, I know money would never change you. It's crazy. I, I can tell that. Like, I remember talking to you about, it. I'm that guy. I'm the friend that's like, yo, you're rich as shit. Like, I'm that guy now. But I, I didn't even push it with you. I didn't even joke around with you because I understood how you were wired and what was important to you. There's one thing I want to make sure that people understand, you know, before we wrap up, which is that Jack Dorsey, you know who he is, right? Of course. Founder of Twitter and Square, yeah. right? Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft. You're the same dude, bro. You're the same. You, Brian, Nathan, I was about to call him Nathaniel. Wasn't that weird? Nate. Nate. Um, that's how I get serious at the end. I just call him Nathaniel for no reason. Um, <laughs> The three of you guys are the same way. You've changed the world. I think it's incredible the stories that we've learned today. It's stories I've heard at other times. But most importantly, you know, and I know you the best. I don't really know your partners that well. I know Brian a little bit. You have not changed in any way. Um, you manage your life with such class and grace. You always are present incredibly rare for people in your position to be present when you're speaking to them, to have somebody that like makes eye contact with you. And I think that this is probably the beginning, which is crazy because you founded Airbnb, but I know this is the beginning for you. And that someone like you who builds crit butts and merchandise lines for your <laughs> RISD basketball team is not even sniffing the surface. You're 40 years old. 
I'm not going to ask you to tell me what you want to do in the future, but do you think you have another magical moment in the future? Do you have another moment in you to change the world or is, was that your, was that your gift to all of us? <laughs> it's really funny to hear you put it like that. Um, look, I feel like I've been insanely lucky, right? All the odds were stacked against us. Uh, you know, I, I got to where I am thanks to so many people along the way. Like, um, I think that there's, there's a lot more magic ahead, um, you know, inside the company and outside the company. Um, one of the things I'm actually working on right now, uh, outside the company is, um, I'm filming my first documentary and it's about the refugee Olympic team that just competed at the Tokyo Olympics in wow. this past summer. Uh, so the IOC created a team for refugee athletes that have fled a country, but aren't quite yet citizens of their host country and they have no way to compete, but they're professional athletes. Yep. So, um, I'm really excited to tell the story about them, uh, uh which will come out next year. That's amazing. Um, on Airbnb films. Uh, it's, it's just like my own side project. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's a lot of interest creatively, um, you know, and I'm excited to see what comes. Well, Joe, obviously we got a long future. We're boys, yeah. but this has been amazing. I mean, I think every time I get to speak to you, I'm able to, to kind of bit learn a bit more of like those moments. I mean, those mm -hmm. moments are what I live for. Those moments are like, you know, an NBA team in practice. The that's, plays on the field, right? That's, like, yeah, that's everything. Th there's one thing that if I could put a, a bow on, on this really fun conversation um, is that I think a lot of people um, may see, you know, a successful company and think that the, the founders like dreamed it up out of nowhere and it just suddenly like they launched and it took off like a rocket. Like that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think like I have to blame Kevin Costner on this because <laughs> like field of dreams is like the opposite of, of starting Reality. a company. Like if you build it, they don't come. They don't come. No, <laughs> like at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you build it, you got to then go find them. <laughs> yes. If you build it, go find them. Exactly. Yes. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> build it and find them. <laughs> build it and find them. And, you know, I think like what's important to take away uh, from this sort of, you know, litany of stories is um, entrepreneurship is, is an act. It's a habit. It's a, it's a muscle that you build over time that you can start at any point in life. Like it doesn't matter how old you are, but if, if somebody's sitting around waiting for the big idea to come to them, not going to happen, not going to happen. Like you got You got to show up. You got to go out into the world and you got to start making stuff. Yeah. It's like uh, any athlete, like you don't, a marathon runner doesn't show up to the start line and run a marathon. Yep. They've been training for years. Yep. It's like, you gotta get in the gym of entrepreneurship. You gotta try getting stuff out into the world. And like, it doesn't all have to stick. That's not the point. But it's just like the act of going through the, the act, yep. right? Like crit buns, the basketball team, e-collect. Like these were all yep. training for eventually, like we came across A hundred percent, man. That's amazing you say that. I, I, I've never, communicated it in that way, but you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's, it's experience. I mean, it's like, we're not rocket science. This stuff happened before us, but when you can comprehend it and vocalize it, it's so clear. And then hopefully it's helpful for other people, which is that it really is the easiest thing and the hardest thing to do for anybody, which is like, just try it, do it. <laughs> you got to do it. You have to get up and figure it out and do it. And that simple unlock for most entrepreneurs 
is easy. Mm -hmm. For the ones that aren't gonna cut it, it's because that moment where one and one don't equal two, where you can't see the light, you can't see the door, you don't know the way out, no one came to the field, you gotta keep going, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know KD's regimen better than anybody, right? Like, how hard does he work to show up and do 50 plus points in a game? Still works now. He was interviewed last week and someone asked him like what he was working on. I think they asked him it with the idea that he would say like, I'm Kevin Durant, and he said, I'm working on my lefty floater. <laughs> He's still fine-tuning his game, and you got to figure it out. Well, Joe, I appreciate you. Appreciate you, Rich. Um, I feel like we can do this again, too, because there's just so many other stories I want to hear. But it's really incredible to be friends with you. I mean that. I, mean, I don't say that lightly. Um, as a friend, I appreciate your friendship. As somebody that has done something so special, you know, the fact that I know you and the fact that I'm privy to these stories is a blessing, and I hope our listeners feel that way. You know, I'm, I'm just excited for what you're going to do in the future, bro. Rich, thanks for having me. It was super fun. My man. Guys, thank you for listening. This is another boardroom out of office. Man, I'm giving you guys the goods. You don't get to talk to people like this very often. Next week, I'm just going to bring some old coach on again. I spoiled you guys. But thank you so much for listening. Please keep tuning in. Boardroom.tv, podcasts. Appreciate your guys' support. Speak to you soon.